Good morning. Welcome to Crestview Inspiration, a ministry of encouragement from Crestview Baptist Church in Canton, North Carolina. We want to share with you sweet songs of worship and an uplifting word from the scriptures. While you listen, may the spirit of grace flow from heaven into your heart and home, right where you are. Your glory, your plans are still to prosper. 
friend. I'm glad to be back with you today, and I'm going to be in the 11th chapter of Daniel. I do love and appreciate our musicians and the beautiful music, and I pray you've already felt the Lord's presence. Today we're in this prophetic passage that uh, requires a lengthy explanation to understand this prophecy. What the angel revealed to Daniel is very involved, so I'm dividing this passage of chapter 11 into several sections to be studied over the course of the next several weeks, six different sections, but today we're going to be in verses 5 through 12. So I'm going to read, and I hope you have your device if you can read it. The Bible says, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. The main idea today is God's purposes will be accomplished through the struggle. God's sovereign purposes, the title is God's sovereign purpose. What is revealed by this struggle of these kingdoms in Daniel 11? The profound truth revealed in this passage is that God, who controls human history, will accomplish his purposes through the struggle. There are three indicators of God's sovereign purpose in this passage. The definition of sovereign is superlative in quality or the most exalted kind, for example, supreme, having undisputed ascendancy like paramount, possessed of supreme power, a sovereign ruler, unlimited in extent and absolute. So when we speak of God as sovereign, we are speaking of the exalted position of supreme authority with undisputed ascendancy, uh, such as God, who alone is paramount, and possessing supreme power that is unlimited in extent, exercising absolute power over the universe. I want to encourage you today with this message, and I want to give you three indicators of God's sovereign purpose. Number one, God knew of the power struggle after Alexander's death. The passage before us today outlines the kingdoms of the divided Greek empire and the struggle for control of geographical territory. The 30 years after Alexander's death, brought a massive struggle between his generals for who would rule what area of his vast empire. Eventually, 
They did divide his kingdom four ways among four of his generals, but most significantly, there are two of the four kingdoms that come into view in this passage, the king of the north, which encompasses modern-day Syria, part of the Middle East, and even all the way to India, with parts of Iran and Iraq and Israel, and then the king of the south, which encompasses modern-day Egypt and North Africa and a section of the lower Middle East. These two kings and their kingdoms fight for control and dominion over the course of many years, according to this prophecy, and verified by history. In verses 5 through 6, this detailed account matches perfectly with what we know from history, that the king of the south is Ptolemy I, Soter, which means savior in the Greek. He was born in 367 B.C. and he died in 285 B.C. He became ambitious after Alexander's death. Now, Ptolemy was a Macedonian nobleman, son of Lagos, and there were rumors circulating at the time of his birth that he was actually the illegitimate son of Alexander's dad, Philip II. That would have made him Alexander's older half-brother. And even though he was older than Alexander, many of the other generals uh, who were younger uh, followed Alexander into battle. Uh, Ptolemy still became a close friend, advisor, and later he was one of Alexander's seven personal bodyguards. Ptolemy chronicled much of the history of Alexander's meteoric rise to power, and after Alexander's untimely death, he took control of the kingdom of the south, or Egypt, and the surrounding area, just like Alexander had charged him to do. The kingdom of the north identifies with the Seleucid kingdom, named after Seleucus Nicator, another Greek general who had a falling out with Antigonus, the most powerful of Alexander's generals. Seleucus then fled Babylon, went down to Egypt to find asylum with Ptolemy, who took him in. So we see this Seleucus Nicator. Nicator means conqueror, like Nike. Nike means conquer in the Greek. He is the prince of the king of the south in verse 5. Then after Antigonus was defeated in 312 BC, Seleucus took control of the kingdom of the north with Ptolemy's blessing and assistance and established his palace in Babylon. The official start date of the Seleucid kingdom, named after Seleucus, is 310 BC when he announced himself king of his realm. His kingdom stretched all the way eastward to India and through Central Asia and all of Syria and back westward to the Mediterranean Sea to the westernmost border of Phoenicia. This massive territory matches with the biblical prediction that, quote, his dominion shall be a great dominion. So we see initially there was a temporary peace between the kingdom of the south and the kingdom of the north, but conflict quickly ensued as the struggle for power and control always erupts. And verse 6 tells us, that they sought to make a peace treaty and join forces, and that the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. This matches with Ptolemy's son, Ptolemy II, who had been at war with the Seleucids, sending his daughter, Bernice, in 252 B.C. to Antiochus II, who was king of the Seleucid Empire. He was to marry her and unite the kingdoms, but there was a complication. Antiochus was already married to Laodicea, a powerful and influential woman. So what did he do? He divorced his wife, Laodicea, and married this young princess from Egypt, and they conceived a child. Gleason Archer writes these words, Thus she, Laodicea, organized a successful conspiracy 
operating from her place of banishment after the divorce, and she managed to have both Bernice and her infant son assassinated. Soon afterward, the king himself was poisoned in 247 B.C., and the pro-Laodicea party engineered a coup d'etat that made her queen regent during the childhood of her son, Seleucus II. Callinicus, he is called. Thus, the prophecy was fulfilled concerning Bernice that she would be given over or handed over along with the nobles who supported her in Antioch. So the prophecy that Bernice would not retain her power nor the king his power came to happen just like God predicted through the angels. God knew the future and has pronounced it years and centuries before it happened. The second indicator is God knew of the struggle between the successors in these two kingdoms. In examining verses 7 through 11, we see the events as predicted here with a branch of her roots who is the brother of Bernice. That's Ptolemy III. This prophecy states, But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. This is Ptolemy III. History tells us that this king organized a great army and went to war against Syria to avenge his sister's death. This war raged for five years and ended with Ptolemy III capturing and pillaging the Seleucid capital of Antioch. He avenged his sister's death by defeating the Seleucid army in 241 B.C. and carried a large amount of spoil back to Egypt. Ptolemy III also recovered Egyptian idols and sacred treasure taken to Persia by the Persian king Cambyses almost 200 years before in 524 B.C. As a result, the Egyptians honored him and named him in November uh, of that year Euergetes, meaning benefactor. So he did make a treaty with Seleucus II in 240 B.C. In 226 B.C., Callinicus dies, and his son Seleucus III becomes king. He only reigns three years, and then he dies. His brother, Antiochus III, now pay attention, this Antiochus is a critical figure in this biblical history and biblical prophecy. He's going to have a son called Antiochus IV, which we're going to really zero in on. But right here, Antiochus III, he's known as the Great, takes over the kingdom of the north and successfully launches a counterattack against the threats from the east and then launches an offensive toward the west in Palestine, which is modern-day Israel. This fulfills what was written in verse 10 about the king of the north's sons. Quote, however, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. There's Antiochus III. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Antiochus did pass through the land of Israel and eventually met the king of the south, who is Ptolemy IV, at the Battle of Raphia, also known as the Battle of Gaza. This was a battle fought on 22nd June 217 B.C., near modern Rapha, between the forces of Ptolemy IV, Philopater, king and pharaoh of Egypt, and Antiochus III, the great of the Seleucid Empire, the kingdom of the north. It's one of the largest battles of the Greek kingdoms and was one of the most significant battles in the ancient world. 
The battle was waged to determine the sovereignty of what is today the nation of Syria. Verse 11 says, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So what we see here is Ptolemy IV, who's the winner of this battle, soundly beat the king of the north, Antiochus III, in the battle of Raphia. The scriptures foretell this event with astounding accuracy. The battle recorded here in verse 11 speaks of a great multitude. The history does not lie. The historian Polybius writes that Ptolemy, king of the south, had 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 war elephants. And Antiochus, who was the king of the north, had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 war elephants. These were massive armies in that day. In fact, this battle at Raphia has been identified as one of the most impressive battles in ancient history still studied by military historians today. This fulfills what the scriptures say in verse 11, that the king of the north would fall to the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, which happened in 217 B.C. And then the third indicator of God's sovereignty is God knows even the intent of the heart. Not only does he know the future, does he know what's coming, but he knows the intent of the heart. The scriptures comment on the heart of this Greek king of Egypt. In verse 12, it says, When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. This verse describes the heart of Ptolemy IV, predicting that he would become arrogant, and as the Proverbs say, pride goes before fall. This king, Ptolemy IV, became arrogant in his heart, and he aspired to expand his kingdom further, but he died. And his boy son, Ptolemy V, would assume leadership of the kingdom. But next week, we'll see how the Ptolemies would fall and the kingdom would never recover. Friends, sovereign God knows even the heart. He knows your heart, my heart. He knows everything about us. And he has control over our lives, and yet we still have a choice. This mystery between God's sovereignty and man's choice defines the biblical tension around God's sovereignty and man's will. But ultimately, we see in this passage the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God who's in total control of human history, and that everything was accomplished exactly as the angel predicted to Daniel. It reminds me of Jesus. He knew the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. And when they quizzed him, he spoke to them in Matthew 15. He said, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are what defile a person. God is sovereign, and he knows the heart. He knows my heart and your heart. And I want to encourage you today with this final illustration about God's sovereign purpose in our lives. The hymns, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood and God Moves in a Mysterious Way were written by a hymn writer, William Cooper, who was a close friend of John Newton and one of England's greatest poets. Despite his many uplifting hymns, Cooper suffered from severe depression pretty much all his life. Spending 18 months in an asylum for insane people when trying on several occasions to take his own life. 
He was born in a preacher's home in 1731, but his childhood was marred by the death of his mother, a bad case of shyness, and the psychological terrors of being bullied at boarding school. His conversion to Christ was a turning point in his life and helped him to cast away ultimate despair and giving him long stretches of sunshine and joyful confidence. And yet, there were still periods of formidable gloom and, and doom that dogged him the rest of his life. According to E.E. E. Ryden's account of his life in the book, The Story of Our Hymns, he writes, In 1773, two years after the two friends, John Newton and Cooper, had begun the hymn book, The Only Hymns, Cooper passed through a mental crisis that almost ended in tragedy. Obsessed with the idea that it was the divine will that he should offer up his life by drowning himself in the Ouse River, the afflicted poet ordered a carriage taxi and directed the driver to take him to a certain spot near Olney where he planned to leap into the river. When he reached the place, Cooper was diverted from his purpose when he found a man seated at the exact spot where he had intended to end his life. Returning home in total despair, he threw himself on his knife, but the blade broke. His next attempt to take his life was to hang himself, but the rope unraveled, and he could not succeed. After his recovery from this horrific experience of depression and failed suicide, he became so impressed by the realization of God's overruling sovereign plan that he was led to write the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It is regarded by many critics as the finest hymn ever written on the theme of God's sovereignty. Let me give it to you here. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings. And blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Friend, God has a sovereign plan and a purpose, and God is in the midst of the struggle. God has a purpose for your life. And I want to encourage you today to seek God and his purpose for your life. Even in the midst of this struggle and as the nation struggles, I, I pray today that you will trust the sovereign control of God and believe in the promises of God for your own life and set your heart to seek him, to do his will and fulfill his purpose for your life. May you find him true to his word and faithful to work out his will in your life, even in the mystery of his ways that we can't see. He is the one true and living God. He knows you and he loves you. And God has a plan for you. Trust him and let him bring you all the way. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for all our listeners. I pray, God, that we will set our hearts upon Christ, who seated in the heavenlies will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and run our race, laying aside the sin that besets us. And completing the course for which you've called us, God, I pray that your mysterious working in our lives will bring forth the shining purpose of Christ in us and in our listeners. God, I pray 
that we will trust Jesus through this difficult time, this hard time, this tumultuous time in our nation and in our world and in our community. God, I pray you bring a spirit of encouragement. I pray on the authority of God's word that you will send your Holy Spirit to every listener and wrap your arms of love and grace and comfort around them right now in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for your promise that you, God, are working in ways that we can't see, that you're working out good in our lives for those who are the called according to your purpose, who love you and are seeking to serve you. God, you'll work out good in our lives. So, Father, work out the good, accomplish your purpose, and thank you for this prophecy that tells us exactly what is going to happen in the future going forward as well as what's already happened. Father, we trust you. We put our faith in you today. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. Strengthen us for this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, walk in faith today, knowing that God, sovereign God, has a purpose for you, and you can trust him and his purpose. And until next week, God bless you. Thank you for listening to Crestview Inspiration. May this ministry touch your heart, encourage you, and strengthen you. And may the Lord bless you in your spiritual walk this week. So on behalf of the Crestview family, we invite you back next week, Friday at 10 a.m. on WPTL as we spread the good news of Jesus.